BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Welcome back. Tom Harmon here with you on the number one progressive radio program in the United States. What do Republicans and Democrats do when they gain complete power over a state? This is like a really interesting question. It's absolutely fascinating. In other words, don't listen to what they say. What do they do? Perry Bacon Jr. wrote a great piece for 538.com. Just documenting this, there are 14 states that are totally controlled by Democrats. The Democrats control the governor's office. They control the senior administrative offices. They control the House of Representatives or the Assembly, as it may be called, or the, you know, whatever the lower chamber is called. And they control the Senate, which is typically what the upper chamber is called. And I think we've got one, maybe two states that have a unicameral legislature. So anyhow, 14 states that are completely controlled by Democrats 22 states that are completely controlled by Republicans. So what do they do differently? In the democratically controlled states, and this is just looking since 2010, this would be the last, well, this is the last decade, basically. In the democratic controlled states, every single one of them has passed a law to hike the minimum wage. Significantly above 725 an hour. Some of them, you know, quite substantially. Every single one of those 14 states has passed a law banning so-called conversion therapy. Basically uh, led to a lot of suicides and a lot of just terrible, terrible outcomes. This was the so-called therapy where you could convert a person from being gay to being straight by harassing them, humiliating them, playing shrink with them, praying with them, which is what the uh, congresswoman from Minnesota, Michelle Bachman, her husband, did for a living. All of these states have banned this have outlawed it because it's so destructive and it actually destroyed lives. All of these states have joined the interstate compact that when you have enough states who represent 274 or whatever the magic number is of electoral votes, then uh, the electoral college basically goes away. Whatever, whoever wins the majority of 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 the votes across the United States wins the presidency. In other words, George W. Bush and Donald Trump never would have been president if this had happened. All of these states have joined this. This is at uh, fairvote.org. You can find all the information on that. So what did the Republican-controlled states do? You've got 22 states that are entirely controlled by Republicans, and every single one of them have passed laws to do the following. Eliminate restrictions on gun rights. They have made it easier 
to get or sell or buy guns. Every single one of these 22 states have passed laws banning cities from being so-called sanctuary cities. And in a few places, you've got cities that are really fighting back on this, saying, hey, what, what about states' rights, essentially? What about, the, what about local rights? What about democracy, small-d democracy? Our people want this. And then all of them have passed legislation that would weaken the boycott, divest, and sanctions movement, the BDS movement, which is an effort by typically people on the left, but not, not entirely, to hold Israel accountable for the apartheid regime that they're running in uh, largely in Israel proper, but in particular in Gaza. Basically the way that the Israeli government is treating Palestinians. And the BDS movement, you know, in some states, if you have signed up for it or endorsed it or whatever, some of these new Republican-controlled states see, you know, no college for you or whatever it may be. I mean, some, some pretty strong uh, restrictions or attempted restrictions on what I would say is free speech. So, you know, there's, there's a whole lot of other things that have happened in some of those states. But basically what you see are that the Democratic-controlled states, the states controlled by people entirely within the Democratic Party, are moving toward a better quality of life for their workers, a more humane way of life for all their people. And the Republican-controlled states, you know, generally trying to restrict abortions, make it easier to get guns, stop sanctuary cities, and stopping the BDS movement. Fascinating stuff. Thanks so much for being with us. The Tom Hartman Program, the place where despair is not an option. Mark in Valley, Washington. Hey, Mark, what's on your mind? You're asking what the Republican Party's turned into. Yeah, or what it stands for. Well, I think they've just accepted that they're fascist. They've been flirting with it since the 30s. And, uh, you know, fascists are pro-corporate, pro-power. The old-fashioned definition of fascism, the dictionary definition, literally, is the merger of corporate and state interests combined with belligerent nationalism. So, yeah, we certainly have that. It certainly seems that way. Thanks a lot for the call. Paul in Woodenville, Washington. Hey, Paul, what's on your mind today? Well, as uh go on to talking about conservatism and fear. Mm -hmm. And so when you say conservative, not you, but when that, I I have to check and see, okay, what is meant by this term? Is this classical conservatism? So I'm going to define that as divine right monarchy. You are the king by the right of God. Or is it conservatism in a somewhere on the continuum of classical liberalism? I mean, there are conservatives within liberalism. So I have to say, well, which, which are we talking about? And I started to think, well, when you talk about fear, in terms of a king, I mean, the people mostly supported the king. When there was a king, most people supported the king because you damn well better, because you, can be real, you, you would be fearful of some other warlord coming and killing you and your family and taking your land. Right. And I've heard this, even with Trump supporters, a woman I think was from Michigan, I think Saginaw, Michigan said, I never I thought I'd hear myself say this, but I never thought I'd want a dictator, but yeah, Donald Trump would be okay. Mm. So what they want is a, a protectorate. Right, they want, so it, they want a strong daddy to take care of. Right. Yeah. They want a protectorate and to quell the things that are fearful to them. And then the question of what's big government is, well, you could say that both liberalism and conservatism has big government. It's just that who has a hand in it? And what conservatives do not like is the fact that the people, because ultimately that's what liberalism is, is self-government. Right. And conservatives don't like the fact that the people themselves 
have a hand in their governance and what will become. So in terms of policy, they want the king to make all the policy. And what they're hoping is if the king is of their ilk, and that's pretty much what it was in the the day of, of kings, they will protect you from people that don't look like you, don't eat the same kind of food as you do, and don't have the same language dialect that you do. And that's exactly what he's doing. I mean, yeah. that's he, he's, yeah. he's coming across exactly like a would-be king. And what's fascinating about it is these studies that were done by this uh, John Barr guy, what he was actually looking at was the way that he was measuring how people's perspectives or positions on the conservative to liberal spectrum changed was actual policy stuff. You know, do you support expanding Social Security? Do you, do you support everybody having access to low-cost or free health care? Do you support everybody having access to pre-K education, to college, uh, you know, debt-free college, stuff like that? I mean, they were just using parts of the, of the ongoing debate, the dialogue, about what direction our country should be going, and right. seeing and shifts see in those my- things based on whether people felt afraid or not. Right, and you can see it in what I was talking about is that goes down to who has a hand in government. Right. So uh, what they really want is, and this is what they keep pushing, is they want a single person, a monarch, to have more a hand of government than anybody else. And that way that one person will make the decisions that they trust to be the ones that are protecting them. And it's really funny is that we talk about their fear. Fear from what? And they, they have to have guns, and they're locking the doors of their churches, and... Yet, who are they afraid of? That it's not. They can't be afraid of some gun-grabbing liberal who doesn't want a gun. Right. So they're afraid of themselves. They're afraid of the people that are just like them. <clears throat> they have that nameless, unreasoning, paralyzing fear that FDR talked about in 1933. Spot on, Paul. Thank you very much, Anthony in Philadelphia. What I wanted to bring up was what I've learned about trying to have political discourse in America. And I think that some of this will apply to the Democratic strategy. I find that when I'm talking to leftists or Democrats, they respond very well to fact-based arguments, to me listing statistics and things of that nature. When I'm speaking to more right-leaning Americans, they don't. They tend to respond to foundational issues, and I find that I have to raise their consciousness in three particular areas before they're even open to factual information and statistical analysis. Real quick, I don't want to take up too much time, but I find that there are three questions I have to ask them. Uh, One is, what is a society? Two is, what is human nature? And three, it's, where where does our technology come to us from? And what I find is the first thing that I have to do is orient them on what a society is. And in my view, it's a group of people coming together to increase quality of life through collective labor efforts. And that means that at the base form, a society is inherently socialist and centered around principles of cooperation. So I see our challenge as a challenge against greed and corruption. And I feel like in order to get Americans to really accept it, what they need to do is have their views about society reoriented, stop subscribing all of our technological progress to competition, and start subscribing that to innovation through the mere existence of a problem. 
and stop assuming that people who are behaving differently than you, it's about their human nature and start tying that directly to people responding to the systems that govern their daily lives. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Our book today in the Tom Hartman Book Club is uh, by Joy Ann Reed. It's titled The Man Who Sold America. This is from the introduction titled Welcome to Gotham. To truly understand Donald Trump, you need to have lived in New York City in the 1980s and 90s when his businesses and marital escapades were a tabloid staple. Or maybe you just need to have grown up on Batman. Gotham City, which the brooding billionaire Bruce Wayne polices as his vigilante alter ego, is an exaggerated dystopian send-up of old New York. It's filled with over-the-top villains who, like Batman, possess no actual superpowers, but get by on their cleverness, their ostentatious wealth, and their ability to wreak havoc on the urban landscape. Donald Trump seems ripped right out of that comic book supervillain universe. With his cantilever hairstyle, weirdly long signature neckties, bizarre syntax, and penchant for slapping his surname on anything he's connected with, from buildings and golf courses to bottled water board games and, for a time, a sham university that promised anyone could learn to be just like the Donald, Trump and the cast of characters surrounding him could fit right in with Joker, Riddler, Penguin, and Lex Luthor. Trump has existed on the outskirts of American celebrity and popular culture for the lifespans of most Americans under the age of 40. He made cameos in movies like Home Alone 2 and on TV shows such as The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. He was in the guest chair on The Phil Donahue Show and The Oprah Winfrey Show, and he performed mock fights with World Wrestling Entertainment Chairman Vince McMahon on multiple episodes of WrestleMania. He even pretended to buy WWE's lucrative Monday Night Raw franchise in an elaborate ruse in 2009, which tanked the entertainment company's stock price, prompting Trump to quickly pretend to sell it back for twice the price. Despite his history of housing discrimination against black tenants and his full ad in the 1980s, full-page ad in the 1980s calling for a group of black and brown teenagers to be put to death for, the, for a gang rape they didn't commit, Trump managed to work his way into popular, mainstream, mainstream popular culture. Early on, he was a tabloid-friendly rogue and celebrity hanger-on, and later the king of the B-list stars who jockeyed for his approval on Celebrity Apprentice. Had he not signed on to the racist birther conspiracy claiming that America's first black president, Barack Obama, was not born in the United States, and plunged headfirst into the morass of anti-immigrant xenophobia that helped him win the presidency, the old Donald Trump might have carried on. He may have remained a cultural gadfly, that peculiar brand of celebrity whose views on everything from geopolitics to the Oscars are sought out for no particular reason other than that he is famous and quotable. But Donald Trump did become president, and so here we are. As a candidate, Trump offered Republicans the taste of the celebrity status that Ronald Reagan had given them, something normally reserved for Democrats. That's what attracted Sam Nunberg, the 38-year-old political advisor who toiled on Trump's warm-up attempts at a presidential runs and on the real presidential deal until he lost a war with Trump campaign manager Corey Lewandowski and was fired in the summer of 2015. Nunberg says Lewandowski saw to it that old racist posts on his Facebook page surfaced. He later apologized for those posts. And though Nunberg readily says that Trump screwed him, he claims he'd vote for him again in 2020 because Trump has delivered on Republican policies 
and judicial nominations. I knew our campaign was doing well when I went into our restaurant after he announced, Nunberg said. The TV was on CNN and he was on and people were watching. These were people who normally wouldn't give a S word, but they were watching him. Trump wasn't just another politician doing a TV hit. He was an American mogul, an entertainer, Nunberg said. And he wasn't rich from making microchips or selling stocks. It was from building, construction. It was this image of success, of him being rich and he can make you rich. We were the WWE, Fox News version of the Obama campaign in the beginning, and I mean that as a compliment. It was aspirational. It was, we can fight the system. Nunberg was raised on the Upper East Side of Manhattan and nurtured on conservative talk radios, strident support for Israel and suspicion of the Middle East. After volunteering for Mitt Romney's 2008 campaign, he worked for right-wing lawyer Jay Sekulow during the 2010 fight to prevent the construction of a mosque near Ground Zero, the site of 9-11. He says Trump wrote a BS letter at the time offering to buy the land where the mosque was to be built, but the offer was just a PR stunt. Nunberg's parents were lawyers, and so he became one too. His father had worked for a law firm that Trump and his father had used for real estate deals. But Nunberg didn't meet Trump in person until he was introduced to him in 2010 by yet another Gotham City character, Roger Stone, the villain with the Richard Nixon tattoo on his back. I wanted to win a national election and thought Trump could win, Nunberg says of his eagerness to sign on. I thought it was cool that Obama went on the late night shows. I thought the John McCain ad showing Obama speaking to millions of people and showing Paris Hilton slamming him as a Hollywood celebrity was the dumbest effing thing I'd ever seen. He all but screamed at the time, you just won him millions of votes. Nunberg thought his party was living in the 1950s. And though Trump was his own version of the madman era, to Nunberg, he was a madman for the 21st century. He and Trump shared a sensibility. He likens to a retired New York City firefighter or cop who mainlines Fox News, plus Rush Limbaugh and Mike Levin on talk radio, and thinks to himself, this country has gone to crap, and we need a guy in the White House who's willing to punch a few holes in the wall. It's Joanne Reed's book, The Man Who Sold America. 2020, a new year. It's the perfect opportunity to take your business to the next level by hiring the right people. But finding qualified candidates can be challenging. ZipRecruiter.com slash begin makes it easy. ZipRecruiter sends your job to more than 100 of the web's leading job boards. But they don't stop there. With their powerful matching technology, ZipRecruiter scans thousands of resumes and finds people with the right experience and invites them to apply to your job. As applications come in, ZipRecruiter analyzes each one, spotlighting the top candidates so you never miss a great match. It's so effective that four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site within the first day. And right now, my listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address. ZipRecruiter.com slash begin. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash B-E-G-I-N. ZipRecruiter.com slash begin. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Okay, so what is the Republican Party all about? Nikki Haley has this book out now. And what's so weird is that the single essential point of the book appears to be, at least from all, I have not read the book yet, but from all the coverage, from you know the interviews that she's doing, people who have read it, who are asking her questions, op-eds, things like that, the essence of it seems to be that two of the most powerful people in the Trump administration, the chief of staff and the secretary of state, 
seemed to believe that Donald Trump was a threat to our country. The essence of her book is, you know, they, they didn't like Trump, and I stood up for Trump, and I helped out. Now, Tillerson is pushing back, Rex, Rex Tillerson. He's saying, you know, Nikki Haley really wasn't even in these meetings that I had with Trump. She doesn't know what she's talking about. And I never said that. But, you know, Nikki Haley, what she's trying to do right now, in my opinion, is bump Mike Pence off the 2020 uh, Republican ticket. She wants to get Donald Trump to dump Mike Pence for her. And frankly, probably politically would be a very smart thing to do. She's in tight with Christian fundamentalists. She's, uh, you know, a woman. She's a person of color. She's Indian ancestry. She's smart. She's articulate. She looks good on television. I mean, she's got all those things that central casting, send us, send us a candidate for vice president. But what's there in terms of policy? What's there in terms of humanity? I mean, to throw, yourself, to throw your lot in with Donald Trump and Stephen Miller and these guys, and, oh, no, no, it's all fine. It's all good. Jet here uh, says she has become one of Trump's cagiest defenders. She's clearly decided that fastening herself to Trump is the best way to secure success going forward, which kind of makes my original point, which is that the Republican Party is dead. And it's now the party of grifters. It's the party of Donald Trump. And he's a grifter. He's a con man. He's been convicted of being a con man. He paid a $20 million fine for being a con man. And that was, you know, years ago. He paid another $2 million fine this, you know, just in the last couple of weeks for being a con man with his, with his phony charity. It's amazing. Chaz in Lakewood, Washington. Hey, Chaz, what's up? Nazadrovia, comrade, is another okay. glorious okay. damn Trumpistan. Is there you not? go. It is. It is. Hey, uh, I'm reading stories that are saying that a lot of Republicans are leaving Congress and a hundred Republicans are departing politics. And I'm just wondering, is that an uh, unusual number? Yes. Is there the, any the, significance to this? The, the number of Republicans who have declared that they are not going to run for re-election, and I think it's in the 30s now, um, is the highest... I believe it's the highest in my lifetime. I, I could be wrong, but it's there's a good chance that some of those will be replaced by Democrats. Right? Yes. Yeah. And in fact, probably that's why some of them are leaving. Um, it may be that others are just like they're sick with their by their party, you know, and they're and they're saying, yeah, OK, it's yeah. time to cash in. Uh, you know, uh, I'll go get that lobbying job that was promised me or, you know, it's. <laughs> Because, you is know, that reflecting that their uh, districts are tending to become a little more purple or even or even blue? I think it's the whole country is is you know as as the Republican Party becomes Trumpified, it it shrinks because you know there's only so much that you can do with fundamentalist Christianity based on racial identity, which is even weird in and of itself because Jesus wasn't a white guy, but. It's like that's, that's. Wait, whoa, 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 whoa! You mean he wasn't a blonde, blue-eyed? Uh, if he was, he was the only one in Palestine at the time. <laughs> Chaz, thanks a lot for the call. It's good to hear from you. It's just incredible what's going on here. And these Trump allies who are getting rich, Politico, you know, busted Seema Verma on this thing. And you know, is that in the news? No, because Trump is sucking up all the oxygen in the room. Pam in Chicago. Hey, Pam, what's up? 
time, I'm going to be concerned uh, with the debates. I'm listening very intently because I want to make sure I'm understanding policy from what's really coming from the candidates. And it discourages me because the pundits don't talk about really the details that they're providing. They rather focus on the surface things. Correct. However, with the progressives, if I could get your take on what's happening with Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders, because they are kind of appealing to the same base of voters. Mm -hmm. And I just remember... I remember in that exchange, Bernie mentioned that he deferred to Sanders before he decided to run initially. Right. Yeah. Four, uh, four years ago, Bernie was uh, on this program every single Friday. People were constantly, well, it was five years ago, people were constantly calling up and saying, Bernie, please run for president. And he kept saying no. And the reason he was saying no, and he said this in the debate, and I've kept quiet about this all these years, but I knew it from back then. The reason why he said no was because he was waiting for Elizabeth Warren to get in. He was hoping she would get in. And he wanted to see if somebody was going to take on Hillary Clinton. He thought, A, it would be better it was a woman. And B, she was close enough to his policy positions that he would fully support her. And C, he thought she had a really good chance of winning. So now let me ask, was he hoping that she would defer to him in this election? And since that didn't occur, Tom, why is it that, uh, I guess, Elizabeth Warren decided to run? And I'm not trying to pit either one against each no, other. No, I get it. But your, your, your point that they're both taking the same base is, is, is you know, one that their campaigns are having to confront now. And, okay. uh, you know, they're going to have to figure out how to differentiate themselves from each other. And it's going to have to be something other than whether or not Bernie thinks that a woman can't win, because nobody nobody's believing that. And and uh, it's and it's real unfortunate that, you know, that became the issue over which they're fighting. But I mean, you add together, they're, they're both polling, you know, in the neighborhood of 15 to 20 percent. Joe Biden is polling in the neighborhood of you know 20 to 30 percent. So if you take mm -hmm. Bernie and Elizabeth Warren and add them together, they're 10 that that that, you know, if either one of them were to drop out of the race or to be or to lose, you know, in, in a several primaries, um, the remaining person would have a larger percentage of the vote, vote. Than, than Joe Biden or even arguably Joe Biden and Pete Buttigieg together, depending on the day. And so, uh, you know, I don't have any easy answer for this. And I'm glad I'm not advising either either team, because this is a real tough one. These are both wonderful candidates. And and, you and know, the policies, Tom, when, we, when I'm listening to the policy that they're trying to put forth. It's uh, what we that need. impresses me. Yeah, it's lastly, absolutely what we need. Go ahead. Uh, when Klobuchar says in the debate where, you know, and, I, and she said this before, where, you know, we can't uh, offer up pipe dreams and things that aren't going to happen. I really want the Democratic, uh, you know, voters to really ignore that because these things aren't pipe dreams. The uh, ideas and visions that are coming from Sanders and uh, Warren, they're, they're real, they're reality. And, you know, they're offering something different because they're going to have to come in behind Trump and do something uh, drastic to reverse a lot of the policies he has put in place. Yeah, it's it's going to be a challenge. I mean, the next president is thank really... You, thank you, Pam. Uh, yeah, they're going to have to go into the White House with a shovel. I mean, you know, it's just it's just that bad. Tim in Houston, Texas. Your thoughts, Tim? Tom, I was curious, since you're the big history buff, can you tell me about how the Republican Party was just prior to and after the uh, Great Depression hit, like under Hoover. And right. I've got one other 
comment I'd like to make. George Lakoff, in his book, uh, talks about there are really two types of people with a so most of us between the two extremes are the conservatives and the progressives, and the conservatives being the have to have a father figure type of a right. Yeah, he uses the family a leader analogy. and progressive. Yeah. No, no, the rest of, we're we're equal. We're going to tell you, right. you know, we we we're it. So. Can I get you to speak to those two topics for us? Sure, yeah. Lakoff's point, point was the Democrats tend to view uh, the, the body politic, the polity, as family. We are all brothers, sisters, you know, we're all related, we, we, we take care of each other. Republicans also view it as a family, but in a strict father model, um, you know, top-down, right. uh, hierarchical and patriarchal. With regard to uh, the Republican Party back in the 1920s, um, Warren Harding in 1920, this is just post-World War I, and tax rates were really high. I think it was 90, 91% after World War I. Um, Warren Harding ran on a platform in the, in the election of 1920 on deregulation and privatization and lower taxes. He, you know, less government, less government and business, more business and government was his slogan. In other words, privatize and deregulate. And, and then, you know, a, a return to normalcy was the other slogan that Warren Harding used in the 1920 election, which meant cut taxes back to where they used to be. And they did that. Right. He, he became president and he deregulated Wall Street. He cut taxes. Um, he just juiced the economy like there was no tomorrow. And it produced what we call the Roaring Twenties. Interestingly, during the Roaring Twenties, wages for working people were absolutely flat for that 10-year period. But, you know, the wealth at the very top just exploded. And, and then, of course, it all blew up in 1929. But Harding... Just and like then, today. Right. And then Coolidge following him just kept those policies in place. And then, and then Hoover presided over the Great Depression, over the, the Great Crash. Tim, thanks for the call. It's good to hear from you. Chris in Humphrey, Arkansas. Hey, Chris, what's on your mind today? Josh Mahoney, Democratic candidate for senator for the state of Arkansas, has recused himself from the race. And now Tom Cotton is running unchallenged really uh for senator yeah so he's he's a shoe in now how did that happen way, uh, apparently josh mahoney had to uh drop out of the race because some executive for a non-profit legal aid society or organization of some kind i didn't read the article thoroughly I'm mm -hmm. so but he's, but, he, but he's dropped out of the race. Uh, that's that's really unfortunate. Um, but you know, I, and I, and I guess it's too late for a Democrat to get back into the race, right? I mean, the primary is oh, yeah, all done and everything. Yeah. The voting period has closed. Yeah, amazing. Chris, thanks a lot for the call and for the heads up about what's going on in Arkansas. You know, sometimes you think this country is just absolutely falling apart, and other times you think, well, you know, maybe this is like the stuff that's going to wake everybody up. Maybe these are the birth pains of a new America. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. I'm inclined to hope for the latter and be concerned about the former. David in Morgantown, North Carolina. Hey, David, what's on your mind? Hey, Tom. Where is President Obama? Uh, he's writing a book right now, I believe. I'm not sure well, where. Well, that could be true, but he's being attacked and he's not responding. Same with Hillary Clinton. I mean, 
this guy, Trump, is blaming them for everything. Of course and, he is. And I'm hearing no response. Well, they're not Can responding because they don't, they don't want to elevate the visibility of Trump's blaming them. If Trump blames them and they don't respond, then everybody goes, oh, yeah, that's what Trump does. He's always complaining. He can't take responsibility for anything. He's always blaming somebody else. But if one of them responds and says, oh, no, I, you know, I wasn't a wimp, or, you know, then game on. Trump wins. I don't believe that. I think people people believe Obama much more than Trump. I think that's probable, David. But again, you pick and choose who you're going to fight with. I mean, I get people on Twitter all the time who say just absolutely outrageous things about me. If I defend myself, I'm giving them fuel. So I just block them <laughs> you know, it's like, or, or, or mute them. I mean, it's just that. And, and, and I think that that's what Obama and, and Clinton, President Obama and, and Secretary Clinton have done with Trump is basically they've muted him. I get your point. I get your point. I disagree with it, but I get your point. David, thanks for the call. Deborah in Denver. Hey, Deborah, thanks for watching us on YouTube. What's up? I mentioned that we were voting for Elizabeth Warren and that she has the juice. Well, since then, that has changed. And mainly as of yesterday, to be honest with you, because we were looking at at Bernie Sanders, and he has, in fact, been stable and consistent for four years. And I just don't believe her. I mean, I looked back, and, and, and there's just no way. He's been consistent. He's ran on things consistently. He hasn't wavered where she has. Mm-hmm. She has flip-flopped. Now, I just want to kind of give my, my thoughts on um, the candidates on what we were looking at as voters, my husband and I, as well as friends and family members. And I noticed that Joe Biden, he um, said that he would run as a Republican as vice president. He never said that he would run for a second term. And uh, I, I noticed that um, people say that he's electable, but he ran for president twice and lost twice. And when I look at his rallies, hardly anybody shows up. And when they do show up, he attacks his voters that don't agree with him instead of winning them over. And I don't think that's presidential. And I want to know, what has he done for black people and Hispanics? Well, if we ask Anita Hill, we know what he did for for her. And we know what he did for Social Security and for bankruptcy and student loans and shark lending. Um, While Bernie was getting arrested for, for marching with Martin Luther King, where was Joe Biden? I don't. I just don't see that he's electable. I'm sorry. I just don't see it. If anybody's going to vote for somebody who's establishment, I, Amy Globuchar would be the better candidate, whereas the rest of them represent everything that we hate about politicians, like Pete Buttigieg. Pete Buttigieg, he is schmoozing billionaires and millionaires, and he's an opportunist. Plus, he was caught in corruption by firing a police chief. And... Um, there's nobody has attacked him on that. He um, he has not done anything. He has no record. Where why are people voting for him? He represents everything that we hate. Well, about I think I think both Amy Klobuchar and Pete Buttigieg are the if Joe falls, they're going to pick up the pieces candidates. They're both running to be the one who if Joe Biden puts his foot in his mouth or commits some big gaffe, uh, you know, which he frankly has done numerous times in the past. They're the ones who can pick up the pieces or either one of them could be betting that if they can do a show, a strong enough showing, you know, in the case of Joe Biden, because of his age, 
um, his vice presidential candidate, and frankly, all of them right now, uh, are, you know, Joe, Elizabeth Warren, and Bernie Sanders, their vice presidential picks are going to be really, really important because they're all in their 70s. Um, so, you know, I, thing, before you before you let me go, I have to say this, OK, mm-hmm. um, just really fast. Um, I checked to see who who um, uh, Joe Biden has inspired. And I haven't seen he inspired anybody. But Bernie Sanders has inspired an entire movement. Mm. He inspired AOC, Katie Porter, Ayanna Presley, Kano. He inspired the entire nation. And um, I don't see that Joe Biden has inspired anybody. I, I just don't see it. Yeah. He, um, no, he I, I, I get it. Um, Deborah, we. Security yeah. I, I, you're you're yeah. repeating yourself now. Deborah, thank you. I got it. <laughs> let's, let's, let's focus on what we like, not, not so much what we don't like. Congressman Ro Khanna is here with us for the hour, taking your calls. He is the vice chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus. He represents the 17th district of the state of California, generally known as Silicon Valley. His website is Khanna, K-H-A-N-N-A dot house dot gov, and you can tweet him at Rep. Ro Khanna. Congressman, welcome back. Tom, it's always great to be on. So you want to pick up phone calls? Or is there That'd anything be great. Like Ray in Astoria, Oregon. You're on the air with Congressman Khanna. Quick background, 80 years old, that Democrat all my life. I'm really disturbed about what's going on with the DLC and the DCCC. Uh, we all know that they sunk Bernie in 16, uh, et cetera, et cetera. How can we take back the Democratic Party, all of it, for the progressive wing of, of the party and get rid of these, well, you know, I call them blue dogs? All right. Thank you for calling. Thank you for your service to the country. I believe the way we get the progressive wing to be ascendant is to have a progressive nominee for president and a progressive president. Once you have a progressive president, that president would get to appoint the DNC head. That president would get to appoint a lot of the party officials. The president would have a big say in the structuring of of the party. To get there, we need a grassroots movement. This grassroots movement is slowly taking over the party. Let me tell you, in California, prior to 2016, the party was not very sympathetic to Bernie Sanders. After 2016, all the Bernie delegates won in their races, and today the majority, or it's certainly the plurality of the California Democratic Party, has Bernie Sanders folks as delegates. So I think slowly we can take back the party. Chris in Oklahoma City. Hey, Chris, you're on the air with Congressman Khanna. I was wondering, uh, with the media companies able to monetize Trump's controversial presidency, and how that leaves Americans perhaps a little skeptical of media's position vis-a-vis re-election. Would there be some sort of appetite for setting a price ceiling for advertising rates for opinion-based programming? So MSNBC, or for that matter, the, co- the, the show I'm calling right now, can't charge 500% more during the Trump administration than it could during theoretical Biden administration for a 30-second ad slot. Hmm. Hmm. Well, Chris, my understanding is that there are regulations for candidate ads where you have to provide the candidate with the cheapest rate possible. Uh, But I'd be open to looking at regulation on advertising to make sure that you can't uh, discriminate based on 
administration that's in power to make sure that it's fair. I mean, I, we did have the fairness doctrine, which I would bring back, which would have gotten to all these matters. But uh, I do think it's a worthwhile point that people should have uh, the ability to advertise at the cheapest dollar and not be discriminated based on their viewpoint. What about just banning political advertising and then requiring, as a condition of maintaining their licenses, requiring media companies, radio and television stations, to carry a certain number of ads free on behalf of candidates, serious candidates for office, or something like that? We sort of well, used open, to do that. I, I, I'm open to the point of uh, having them required to give a certain amount of airtime for free to candidates. I'm not for banning these ads either on social media or or radio or television, just because I think that the First Amendment, I mean, if you're opposed to the war in, in Iran, or if you're opposed to the war in Iraq, or if you want to be doing things on climate change, I think we should be able to reach people in as many ways uh, uh, to advocate. But I do think there should be some threshold that uh, media companies give to, to every serious candidate. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Joe, in Cupertino, California, you're on the air with your congressman. I wanted to give a shout out to the legal women voters in the 19th Amendment because it's a 100-year anniversary, and you talked about you know how that we could change the Constitution. I think it's in there. Maybe the last sentence different. Congressman, I'm really proud to suggest that maybe we should call Mark Pocan and make a gentleman's bet. We've got the 49ers here in your county, in your district. We're playing this was Sunday. I maybe he said cheesehead for, I don't know, what you think would be fair. But my question was asked earlier, I asked earlier of Tom was that AOC has but said she doesn't want to pay the $250 to the triple D because she doesn't think that they allow for inclusion. Is the D triple C. Yeah, the D triple C. I wonder if you had uh, anything to think about or anything to say about that, because I really think that's going in the right direction. I mean, um, Bernie's not a corporate Democrat, and I think that that's what we're trying to promote is progressive policies together. So, you know, here in California, it's different maybe than it is on the East Coast. But progressives are the wave of the future. I'll take my answer off the air, but thank you again. And think about the game. Well, Joe, I appreciate it. I think very positively of Mark Pocan these days, despite the 49ers uh, Packers uh, upcoming game. And that's because Mark just recently endorsed Bernie Sanders. And I think is going to be a huge asset to Bernie Sanders. You know, Mark was telling me on the floor of the House that Bernie Sanders carried 71 out of 72 counties in Wisconsin. And so he's going to be going into wow. Iowa and making the case why Bernie Sanders is the most electable in uh, flipping Wisconsin. On the DCCC, you know, I also actually share Mark Pocan's view. We, we both paid our dues. We both very vehemently disagree with the DCCC's policy on blacklisting consultants, and we're pushing to change it. But we view the dues as sort of like union dues. I mean, these are dues that go to a party that helps elect Democrats and help build the majority. You can vehemently disagree on policy, but I do think it's important still to to support the party. But I respect very much Representative Ocasio-Cortez, and she's doing an incredible amount of work to help candidates individually, so she's doing her part in her own way. Uh, Lou, in Fair Play, Colorado, you're on the air with Congressman Khan. Yes, uh, first I want to thank Congressman for his office has helped with a friend who was falsely arrested and deported. So thank you for that. And I wanted to suggest that we, as in the Democratic Party, is there any reason we couldn't go to ranked choice primaries so that we can have Elizabeth and Bernie in the same contest without worrying about it? Well, that's a good question. 
Well, it's a great, great question. I mean, I've supported ranked choice voting. It has worked in places we've done it in California. I think it allows for more progressives to emerge. It allows for more women and minorities to emerge. You know, it would be great to consider doing a form of ranked choice voting in the presidential election. It would require the DNC uh, to implement that reform, but I certainly think it's a good idea. Ronald in Chicago, you're on the air with Congressman Connor. This is a time I'll tell you, and I, and I listen to you when you come on, and, and I love what you do, love the job, and how you are, sir. My problem is the mental state of the president. Uh, Tom was describing earlier how he rants and raves and goes through all these things, and in front of his journals, he calls idiots. And it just disturbs me as a citizen of this country how this man could be in charge of 330 million people and carrying on conduct like this. Is there anything that can be done, or do you guys do anything, or does anybody say anything about this? Well, I share your concerns. I mean, it's a level of lying and erraticism that is completely unprecedented. I mean, the president goes out there and says that, there was an imminent attack on four of our embassies. And then literally the next day, the Secretary of Defense says, no, I never saw any intelligence suggesting that. So it's not just that he's contradicting his own party or he's contradicting the Congress. He's actually contradicting senior people who work for him and are carrying out his orders. This is why, in part, given the abuse of his office and given how he has subverted the rule of law, that he's being impeached. But Short of removing him from office, I don't know what more the House can do. And we've done our part, and now it's up to the Senate to convict him. Yeah, and and make sure that everybody we know is registered to vote in in the event that Mitch McConnell has his way, right? Absolutely. Yeah, Absolutely. there you go. Do it at the ballot box if we can't do it in the Senate. Chris in Stowe, Ohio. You're on the air with Congressman Connor. Congressman Connor, I saw something so upsetting on C-SPAN this morning. I've seen you on the Washington Journal program, so I know you know what they do. They have a guest on, and they talk about, you know, their issue, and then they take calls. But this morning, the woman who came on was a woman called Lauren Leader, and she's from a group called um, All In Together that promotes women in politics. And I was hoping that you could get someone from the campaign, from Bernie's campaign, to take a look at that 9 o'clock hour on C-SPAN from today, because it was really upsetting how they presented the issue over the debate. They did not show the question that the moderator had asked Bernie, all they showed was the question that was asked to Elizabeth Warren, and they made it look like Bernie actually did insult and lie about Elizabeth Warren, and I was so upset. Well, Chris, thanks for bringing it to our attention. I believe that the facts are pretty obvious. Senator Sanders has enormous respect for Senator Warren. He always has. Every time I've spoken to him, he's spoken about her in terms of her respect for her beliefs and the type of campaign she's running. I mean, he believes she's built a formidable coalition that absolutely could beat Donald Trump. So I agree with Senator Sanders and many of the progressive groups that we need to move on. Our focus needs to be electing a progressive nominee, and we shouldn't let the media continue to put out this story uh, that is there to undermine the senator. Yeah, and also to, to jack up the ratings for CNN, in my opinion. <laughs> but who knows?
Jerry in Gaylord, Michigan. Hey, Jerry, you're on the air with Congressman Kana. What does he think of raising minimum wage? We have raised it so many times, and all it has done is raise prices. Well, Jerry, we, we haven't actually raised it so many times, and the minimum wage is still stuck at $7.25. Now, in some certain places in California, we have it at $15. But I don't think it's too much to ask in a country where you have trillion-dollar companies, where you have people making millions of billions of dollars, that the workers should have some benefit from a globalization and the technology revolution. I mean, Google, Apple, these companies can afford, Amazon can afford to pay 15 bucks, and uh, we can have a society and that affords uh, uh, to, to pay workers a, a wage where, where they can have uh, uh, housing and health care and education. So I fully support an increased minimum wage. Leslie in Central Square, New York. You're on the air with Congressman Kana. I think the next president, Bernie or somebody, should start using executive orders immediately. One would be no lobbying right away, okay, in, in Congress. No lobbying at all. Four years, no matter what, if he take it back, there's a lot of good being going to be done. And if he gets eight years, a lot more will be getting done. So no more ability to leave Congress and get a million-dollar-a-year job as a lobbyist. What do you think, Congressman? I completely agree with that. I mean, I don't think that uh, people should cash out on their public service. Uh, Harry Truman, when he left office, uh, uh, there's a famous uh, anecdote that he was uh, had to ask someone to pay the train ride uh, to go give a speech because he didn't have enough money uh, to, afford to afford the train ride. I mean, it used to be you didn't do these jobs to, to go get rich. Uh, and uh, a ban on uh, a lifetime ban, in my view. If you've served in Congress, there's no, you should never be able to become a lobbyist. Mick in Seattle, you're on the air with Congressman Kana. What is the status of the children incarcerated at the border? And are the troops still there to uh, manage the border along with the border guards? And why did $1.7 billion get spent on a wall when this crime is continuing? It's outrageous what has happened. First of all, all the kids who were separated from their parents, all of them still have not been returned. Second, while there have been improvements in the conditions from the absolute worst, there's still a point where families are being sent back in a return to Mexico policy, even though they would qualify for asylum, and where kids are being detained in these conditions that are not up to American standards. And you're absolutely right. The president misallocated resources from the Pentagon budget to build his wall that I believe was unconstitutional. So we need to challenge these things in, in court, but ultimately the House is impeached. Him. I mean, there's, we have to either beat him in an election or remove him from office. Congressman Ro Khanna, he represents the 17th District of California in the U.S. House of Representatives. Khanna.house.gov, K-H-A-N-N-A.house.gov is the website. And you can tweet him at Rep. Ro Khanna. He's the vice chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus. You know, with every passing year, we all look older, but Plexiderm can make you look so much younger that you need a new driver's license photo. That's Plexiderm Rapid Reduction Serum. It's magic in a bottle. Plexiderm is a clinically studied serum that visibly eliminates your wrinkles, crow's feet, and under-eye bags in minutes. Just apply this powerful serum to problem areas, and within minutes, voila, new younger you. And the best part, no surgery or Botox. It's all natural. Ring in 2020 with Plexiderm for smooth, younger-looking skin in minutes. And it goes on clear, so nobody even knows you're using it. 
Leave your under eye bags and wrinkles behind with Plexiderm. Go to Plexiderm.com and use my code Hartman with two N's for 50% off plus an additional 10 bucks off. That's right, half off plus an extra $10 off. This offer is also available by calling 1-800-741-7998. Again, that's 1-800-741-7998 or visit Plexiderm.com today and use my code Hartman at checkout. Welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. So much that we've been talking about today, so, on, so much on the table. Somebody uh, on Twitter, in fact, let me just pull it up here. Mike McGrath says, Tom, the two Santa Claus theory is no longer a theory. After decades of evidence, the theory has been proven. You should call it a rule or a law. You're right. It's the two Santa Claus rule. Anyhow, Brian in Minneapolis. Hey, Brian, what's on your mind today? Tom, David Stockman in his book refers to the two Santa Claus theory as Starve the Beast. And it was him and Ronald Reagan and Peggy Noonan that were there that created that phrase. And I'd just like you to consider referring to it as Starve the Beast rather than two Santa Claus because I try to educate a few of my fellow workers and I, I get some... I get I can't stumble past the shooting of Santa Claus. Ah. The start of the beast is easier for them to assimilate. That's that's a good point, Brian. So so the essence of Star of the Beast, you know, it's, it's, it's exactly the same thing. I mean, that was their brand for you cut taxes and reduce government revenues, which drives up the debt. And then you scream about the and debt increase. Yeah, you increase defense yep. spending and. And you cut taxes. Yep. And then when you're out of power, then you call for decreased spending and, you know, all of the things that you say. Yeah. But the star of the beast is easier to comprehend. Yeah, That's all you're I'm absolutely right. Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll consider uh, recalibrating my riff. Although, you know, two Santa Claus <laughs> is kind of, you know, I'm kind of bonded at the hip to that brand because I've been talking about it for 15 years since I first discovered it. But I think, you, yeah. I think you're probably right, Brian. Brian, thanks a lot for the call. It's great to hear from you. Johnny in Lamarck, Texas. Hey, Johnny, what's on your mind today? Hey, Tom, I think it's a good what he got. The two Santa Claus theory is pretty un- simple to understand. By the way, can you ask Bernie and, and Elizabeth Warren to bring up the two Santa Claus theory in the next upcoming debates? That would be really great. Oh, that's a good idea. Yeah, or the Star of the Beast theory, as it were. I think it's, it's time to say, okay, you know, we had that experiment. It failed. We're going to move on. Tom Harvin here with you and Terry in Minneapolis. Hey, Terry, what's on your mind today? What's on my mind is I don't like that term at all of uh, starve the beast. Beast does not have a good connotation. Well, that was the whole point, characterizing the federal government as the beast. Yeah, I get it. So you think we should go back to Santa Claus theory? What I think that I don't care what term you use, the thing is to get is Republicans are freeloaders. They're like anybody that you've ever gone to a bar with a bunch of people and we're all buying drinks. But when it's time for a Republican to pay for his drink, oh, he's gone. He's in the bathroom. Yeah. Ever pick up a tap. Never pay their share. Yeah, we all know someone like that, right? Cheap people. Oh, I've, I've. Guys like that all my life. You don't want to go drinking with those slobs. 
Yeah. You don't. Yeah, Republicans are... He's getting their drink, but they never pay for it. They never pick up the tab. Yeah, there you go. Terry, well said. Thank you. Manny in uh, Moreno Valley, California. Hey, Manny, you wanted to talk about the two Santa Claus theory? Yeah, that is great that you brought it up again. And I think that was perfectly illustrated under the George W. Bush administration where I saw that in, in, in practice. And I'm a, I'm a middle-aged guy, so I, wasn't, I, was, I was a young child during the Reagan administration. But the George W. Bush administration, he and the two wars spent like crazy, didn't pay anything for them. Then Obama came in and had to figure out a way to pay for it. And so he had to raise taxes and cut services to pay for Bush's wars. And then the, the, the Republicans have enough to believe about being financially responsible. It's a joke. And not only that, George W. Bush, I mean, you know, the two wars, spending like crazy, he had a massive tax cut. And this is the third massive series of massive tax cuts since Reagan started this process, which just makes income inequality even worse. And then in 2005, when George W. Bush got reelected, and most people don't even remember this, I remember it vividly, in January of 2005, George W. Bush came out and said, we need to privatize Social Security. He came right out and said, we need to turn over the banks. And he went on tour around the country. He went to 22 cities, as I recall, and, and, you know, giving this sales pitch for privatizing Social Security and Medicare. And what happened was the more he talked about it, the more unpopular it became. And finally, after about four or five months, he said, screw it. And he pulled the plug and stopped talking about it. Also, another thing, too, if you remember during his administration, Cheney said deficits don't matter. That was famously recorded. That's remember right. That? You're absolutely right. Dick Cheney said deficit. He said, actually, what Cheney said was Ronald Reagan taught us that deficits don't matter, which is all two Santa Claus stuff. Manny, thank you for the call. And thank you all for being with us today. Uh, another amazing day slides by. We'll be back tomorrow, same bat time, same bat place. And in the meantime, don't forget, democracy does not spontaneously spring like out of a head of Zeus kind of thing. It requires you, and it requires information. However you're hearing this show, tell your friends about it, please. So get out there, get active, tag, you're it. We'll see you tomorrow. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.